Sundays. We're going to go ahead and head into the sermon, okay? All right, so thank you for the clock, and thank you for everything else, and thank you for my clicker, <laughs> because I forgot it, okay? And you guys are going to be clicking me here real quick. Okay, so most popular psalm in the Bible, which one? 23. See that? 23, okay? 23, pop it up there, okay? Now, the reason why I like Psalm 23 so very much is because... I think it describes perfectly what it is to walk with Christ. The journey that there is, that there's different seasons that different things happen. Do we not know where it is? Really? Well, then I'm going to guess that it's back there somewhere or on the floor, or I probably put it on the other side or something, you know, me. <laughs> okay? But here's what I want to do. Just click with me until, okay? All right. So watch this. This is this perfect journey right? So it starts off with, the Lord is, it's a psalm of David, very important, David who suffered a lot and everything else, walked with the Lord very closely, God let us see into what a relationship with him was like through his relationship with David, and the intimacy, the vulnerability, transparency that David showed us in these psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Now let me ask you a question. Did David always live a life of green pastures and still waters? There was an awful lot of time he was being chased around and other bad things were happening. So for him to say this is a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? Okay? He's saying, in fact, the key to it is he restores my soul. You know what that means? That it was in a place where it was depleted. <laughs> there was something going on that had emptied it. Right? And so what he's saying right now is he's saying, look, the Lord is my shepherd. Not, not just yet. Go, go back. He's saying, this is the time when we're at peace. This is the time when our life is settled. This is the time when things are good. Okay? I don't know what we're going to do. Thanks for trying, guys. And I'm just going to keep going. And not, When I say click, you click. Okay? All right. But you get, <laughs> but not now. But not now. You get it? This is the time when things are good in life. You look around and you do not see trouble. What you see is security. What you see is things are good, right? And understand that part of what that time is, if you think of Psalm 23 as a cycle, part of what it is when life is good is it's a season where you can breathe again, having gone through a difficult season, so that you can be restored, but that also means so that you can be built up. There's things that have been going on in your life that you need to now assimilate and think through and pray about when you have rest, right? So part of the reason why he gives us rest is to own what he has taught. You get it? So there we are. See, he's restoring your soul. There you go. Now we go to click. Okay? He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That means for his purposes. He, in other words, he takes me from the green pasture where I'm happy. And he takes me on a journey for his purposes. We're going to see what those purposes are. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Oh, oops. <laughs> right? I was in green pastures and still waters, but all of a sudden now I'm being led on a path where your rod and your staff are comforting me, meaning God is directing us. A man makes his plan. God directs his steps. God is taking me on his journey for his purposes, even if I don't know what that's about. And the bottom line is, is that what he's doing is, it'll get to a place, oftentimes, doesn't it? It gets to a place to where something needs to die in us, right? God makes it clear at some point in time, there's something that's got a hold on you, you may not even know what it is. Sometimes it's real obvious, sometimes it's not at all obvious. But what God is doing is, is he knows what's holding you back, not just for now, but for what's coming. And so he takes you through these places where things in you die, where things in you that need to die, die, okay? So I, I fear no evil, you're with me. A rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's his journey. Click, okay? That would be a move that, yeah. You, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That is hilarious. I put my hand in my pocket. I went, what was that? <laughs> that is so funny. Oh, you guys need to be praying for me a lot. <laughs> I know, I know. 
in the presence of my enemies, the very things that some of which I was aware of and some of which are things that were coming that I wasn't aware of, the very things which were troubling me, which were after me, right? Those very things, now I'm feasting in their presence. I'm not scared of them anymore. I'm feasting in their presence because what you've done, you've anointed my head with oil, meaning that you've given me an even fuller measure of the Holy Spirit than the last time I went through the circle. The cycle. See that? And now all of a sudden I've got more of the Holy Spirit. So then he goes on and he says, you anoint my head, my cup overflows. Wait a minute, he was just talking about being in the valley of the shadow of death. And now his response is, is my cup overflows when we get through this stuff. Right? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Every day. The tough days, the great days. Every day, goodness and mercy. He is making it to where I dwell in his house every moment, forevermore. Isn't that right? Now, what a great psalm, right? So here's the question, and I want honest answers here. You're going to see why in a second. Okay? I want an honest answer here. Now, don't raise your hands until I say so, but watch this. There's, we're going to ask you to raise your hands on one of two things. I'm asking you to raise your hand because you're one of two things here. You're either in a season... Where everything's good. It is genuinely still pastures, or still waters, green pastures, it's good. You will look around and you don't see trouble. You feel like things are good, right? You're being restored. This is that season. Or you're in the, another season where you look around and there's trouble, right? You, you, you know, even if you're okay, even if you're not dying, even if you're not freaking out, you look around, and it's not a time of settled and sure and secure. It's a time of change and transition and, at the very least, upheaval, right? Now, I want to ask a question. And don't feel bad about raising your hand for the first one or the second one. But how many people would say, I'm in the first one? Still pastures, okay, still waters, green pastures. Okay, now look at how many hands go up. There's some. I knew there'd be some. But now, how many people are in that second one where it's more time of trouble? Okay, did everybody get your hand up? I want to do that. It's still considerably more on this. But I just want you to see something. I want to, I want to tell you something. I, I have the great fortune of getting to interact with a lot of different people outside of this church. Uh, one of the things that always happens to me whenever I'm preparing a sermon is, is that God will give me what the sermon is early on in the week. I'll have some sense of it. And then he'll start teaching me what it means throughout the week. And, and this has been a week where he has pressed in on me so heavily what he wants to say here that literally every single thing that happened to me this week is in the sermon. It's not that long. Don't worry, though. <laughs> there is a game happening, so that will help me. But every single thing that happened. And w as just one example of this, I was sitting with some pastors on Tuesday to lunch. And I asked them this very question. And of all of the people that were seated there, there was only one of them that said, I'm halfway in between the two right now. Every single other one of the pastors said, it's clearly a time of, on his paths for his sake, for his purposes, and it's, things are interesting, which is a euphemism for another word, okay? Right? Things are interesting. Things are, mo things are, he's shaking, Right? Now, that's not just that lunch. I see this. I talk to people. I, I go all over the place. And I've gotten to the place to where, and this is before just this week, I've gotten to the place to where I feel like I've seen this so much now over the last couple of months that you know how the Bible talks about there's different seasons and that we're to discern the seasons? I've discerned that this is a very powerful move and a very powerful thing. And I've got to tell you, this week, God has brought that to a culmination in my heart to where I've begun to believe. I wouldn't say that I'm 100% there, but I'm enough there to preach it. And that means I've got to be at 99.9. .9. Okay? But I've, I really believe that there's something that God's doing in his body that is the most significant change that I have seen in my lifetime in Christ, which would go back over 40 years, or right at 40 years now. Okay, literally 40 years ago. Wow, how about that? Uh, 1976. But the point, uh, only 1978, so I'm two years short. But either way, the point is, is that 
is that something extremely significant happened in the body of Christ about a generation ago, the Jesus movement. When we went from hymns to choruses, when this new wave swept over the church and literally changed the face of the church and every church. It took some churches longer to get it and some churches, you know, and there were splits. And, but you know how big of a change that was. And I'm telling you, we have not seen a move of God that has been of that size, that significance, since. We've seen several different things happen. But nothing, and I actually think that we're at the beginning of something that I think we'll look back at and we'll say, okay, it's a new generation. Every generation he's doing a new thing. It's not that he's not the same yesterday, today, forever. It's that we're finite and that we need to learn that there's something else he wants to show us. So this is where we're going, and what I want to tell you is this is incredibly important. I'm so happy that you're here today because I really think that this is going to cast some vision in a prophetic way about what God's doing, and I want us to go there. So my catch, that is absolutely perfect. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> If you don't know Mike, get to know Mike, okay? This is a great man with an amazing heart. Sorry. <laughs> Mike, you can stand up and pray. Pray for the sermon. Pray for another church. Thank you. <laughs> Lord, I thank you for bringing us here today, and we're excited today for what you're going to say this morning, and of course, what we're going to watch later on. Um, there's a man there you're going to lead into a green pasture of a different kind, <laughs> And that we were asked, Lord, that you would let the testimony of the Christians that are involved in sports and in the Seahawks, that you would let their testimony shine forth today, Lord. Amen. And that you would not let them wait to the shadow of the last three minutes of the game, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that you would anoint them, Lord. And we just ask that you would be with us today through the message you bring in. And we ask that you would bless Bellevue Baptist Church Amen. in Memphis, Tennessee, Lord, that you would uh, come upon the people there uh, and that you would raise them up, and that you would inspire them to live lives uh, that are a testimony for you, just as you're doing in this place. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike. I meant what I said in my text this morning, too. All right. Now, we are in our series. Our series is Empowered. The idea is that the Holy Spirit wants to come upon us to move through us as God wants in what way he wants. That's what we're doing. We're spending a long time on this. Why? Because it takes us a long time to really get this. Okay, as Peter Lord said, I said, what would you do differently? And he said, I'd keep preaching the same thing until we were actually doing it. So we're going to be here until we're actually doing it. I think God will keep us here until we actually move into it and we're actually seeing him do this. Now, in part what this is about is, is that we're looking at how he discipled his disciples in Luke, as revealed in Luke, because we assume that that's what he's doing with us. He's teaching us just like he taught them, right? We're his disciples, they were his disciples. How he taught them, he's using it as a model to show us how he's teaching us, okay? So, I'm going to tell you now five short stories, which initially do not seem connected. But I'm going to show you how they're not just connected, but they're the same thought being run by the Lord over and over. And in fact, I think Luke very definitely had this in mind when he put these stories together from some desperate time slots. But he put five stories together, short stories, but he put five stories together in order to show us something. Remember, what we're coming off of is Jesus has just told them that he's going to die. They're thinking he's going to be the king who's going to raise up the nation of Israel in rebellion against Rome and overcome them. They're thinking that they're going to be the big shots in the new kingdom. He says, that's not true. I'm going to die. So reorient your thinking. The Bible says they could not understand it. That's how far outside of their understanding this was. They could not understand it. I would, would, would want to go somewhere else with it, but that would be another sermon. But the bottom line is, I want to show you the first thing they did after he said, it's not at all what you think. Now here's how much they weren't getting it. We looked at it last week. Then an argument started about them, about who'd be the greatest of them. Well, that's just, you know, this is because they're thinking kingdom, and they're thinking right arm, and who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom that Jesus is going to establish here on earth, right? So who's going to be the greatest? Jesus, knowing their thoughts of their hearts, love that, 
took a little child, had him stand next to him, and he told them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me, the Father. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. People that are powerful, great, have people that serve them. Jesus has flipped this and said, if you serve other people, you're the great one. That's what he's doing. He's serving us, right? Eventually he'll wash our feet the night before he goes to his death to demonstrate in the most tender and precious and, and strong way the degree to which he is a servant in what he does. You see it? So he's flipped it. You see this confrontation about what they're thinking? Now that's the theme that carries forward in these stories. This is story number one. Story number two. John responded. You see how it comes right after? See, John, he says that about great, and then John takes it to another place. Here's what he does. Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. Don't stop him, Jesus told him. Whoever's not against you is for you. Now, Justine did this a while back and did it brilliantly, and just in summary, let me say what she pointed out is, if you think you're the, the be-all, end-all, if you think you're the one that God is going through in order to get done what he's trying to get done, you're wrong. We need to start understanding that we're but a cog in a wheel. An important cog, but just a cog. And there are things that God is doing which we have no idea about because of the way that he is working his grander purposes. We are but an instrument of his inside of a thing that is too complicated for us to even begin to understand. And that's why we need to learn, as we've been saying over and over, plain obedience. Just whatever he tells you to do, do it whether you understand it or not. Today, I think he's trying to give us understanding because he says, when I'm about to do something, I tell my servants I'm about to do something. So I think that's what he's trying to do today. But understand, if we didn't hear that, it wouldn't matter. If we didn't know what he was doing, it wouldn't matter. What we need to learn is, is just do whatever he says because if you'll do what he told you to do, it's going to work. It's the same way in football, right? One of the reasons why football is such a spectacular game is because every single person has to do their job and if they do their job well, the sum of the parts is greater than the individual contributions. See, that is the story of the Seahawks, by the way. More spectacular than I've ever seen it in pro football, I believe. Okay, this is a team not, or, anyway, oh, anyway, so. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's what I was looking for. All right. So you see what he's doing here. He's, he's confronting an understanding that he's, John is saying, they're not part of us, so don't let them do it. And he's saying, there's a whole lot of stuff that ain't part of you. Let them do it. <laughs> see what I mean? Right? A confrontation, right? Now watch. He does it again. The days are coming for him to be taken up. See, now this is later in time, and now we're going to, he's just about to leave, and look what he says. The days are coming to be taken up. He determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead. On the way, they entered a village of Samaritans to make preparations, but they did not welcome him. Those were the Samaritans that hate the Jews, and the Jews hate the Samaritans. Okay? And, and so they did not welcome him because, because he determined to go to Jerusalem. He was going someplace that they hated and through their land. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? He turned and rebuked them. Do you see how Luke is grouping these together? This challenge to how they think? And then this bracket part, this actually is found in some of the earliest manuscripts, sometimes a bracket, but they're just, right? But you don't know what kind of spirit you belong to. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy people's lives, but to save them. You get the wrong heart. You're misunderstanding completely what I'm doing and what I'm asking you to do. You're trying, to, you're trying to call down fire. I'm trying to save people from it. See? And so the Son of Man, uh, uh, and they went to another village, okay? So once again, huge confrontation, right? Now watch. It keeps going. That's story number three, I think. Yeah, three. Now here's number number four. As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. That's cool. Jesus' response is, that's awesome. I love it when people want to follow me. Right, let's go. What is his response? Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds, have, birds of the sky have nests. The Son of Man, he doesn't have any place to even lay his head. 
Now think about that for a second, okay? This is count the cost of the tower moment, isn't it? I said to the Lord one time in my life, I will follow you. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Three years later, I was completely broke. And the Lord told me that when you said that, you didn't know what you were talking about. And by the way, at that point in time, gave me and said, I'll restore everything to you if you want. Or you can take another path. And I chose the other path, and I've told that story too many times, so I'm not going to tell it now. But the bottom line is, I want to tell you, you've got to count the cost of the tower. When you say you're going to follow Jesus, that means things that you do not understand. And it is bad to get in the middle of a journey with Jesus and decide it was oops too much. And want to pull out. Want to give up. You see it? So, this again is a challenge. Count the cost of the tower. Understand, something's coming, much more. When I saw the vision of God restoring everything to me and what I would be, and then the other vision of me going in a direction where there was just a man faintly that I, could, I didn't really know who he was. I could tell it was me, but I didn't know who that man was. When he did that, and I said to him immediately, I'll choose that way, the word to the Lord, the Lord, word to the Lord to me was, and I can say this still as if I'm listening to it right now, he said, I have just destroyed you, and you would say this, that cavalierly? You use the word cavalierly. I've destroyed you, and you would, <laughs> haven't you learned anything? All of a sudden I knew, oh, count the cost. <laughs> so I got up, and I counted the cost for three days, and then I went back down, and I said, okay. I don't know what it means. I don't know if I'll make it, but with you I will, and I'm going with you. I'm going here. And by the way, he said the other thing was him too with no condemnation whatsoever. But the bottom line is, do you get it? There's this thing that he's asking us for that is much more than what we get. And then he comes, and this is a one-two punch. So this is story number five, but really five and six. Then he said to another, now look at this time he says to somebody, follow me. Last one said, I'll follow you. Now he's saying, follow me. And what the guy says is, is let me go first, let me go bury my father. And he tells him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and spread the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to understand something. To a, to a Jewish ear that understands the Ten Commandments, one of which is honor your father and your mother, this is almost blasphemous. Do you hear it? You're supposed to honor your father and your mother. And he just said, let the dead bury the dead. That doesn't sound very honoring, does it? So... This is a pretty big challenge on a, on a number of different levels, right? And then he goes on with it. Again, this one-two punch that he gives. And another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those in my house. Now look what Jesus says. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I want to make something very clear. That's me. I've looked back. I have. Wow, this is really tough. You know, I would like. Now, I've never said I want to go back to Egypt. I haven't. But I, I've looked back, and he doesn't say the one who goes back. He says the one that looks back is not fit for the kingdom. Now, I know that God in his grace loves me. Okay, and I know that I, I go to heaven. If I die right now, I know where I'm going. By his love and by his grace. But I don't ever want to fool myself in thinking that I get there because I'm good at this. I get there because he's graceful and merciful on me who has still got a lot of crap I'm working through. Excuse the language, but that's true. And if we'll look, we'll see that that's true with all of us. All of us need to be challenged. He challenged those disciples in that moment, and he was saying to them, there's something coming that you don't know about and it is huge, and it is going to take everything from you. Don't forget, every disciple ended their life away from their families in foreign lands. All but John actually martyred. Modern ear, if you're going to go on missions, you take your family. You realize that that's the last 50 years or so? You realize that even at the turn of the century, or the turn of the last century, the 1900s, you realize that at the turn of the century, that if you went on a missions trip, you would never take your family because then they would die too. 
you, you would go off for years at a time and do mission work and, and then come back to your family who was praying for you and loving you and raising themselves. And see, we think that's not right. You can't raise, have your kids raise yourself. That's not good parenting. Right? Modern ear, hear it? This is not okay. And yet when we look at the scripture, it seems like maybe something else is happening. It seems like there's a very different call that he has. Right? In fact, the thing that he's saying is, is you've got to understand what everything is about and everything he's saying, you go and spread the good news of the kingdom of God, no matter what it takes, no matter what it means. I'm happy that missionaries get to go with their families. I love that. And I'm thankful that the world is in such a place that we can do that and have a relatively high degree of, of safety. But do understand, it's not just 100 years ago that people would die in the mission fields and their family would. That's still happening. Right? And the fact of the matter is, is what Jesus is asking us is this one simple question. Can I send you? Will you follow? Will you go? Do you understand the cost? And we all say, yes, we do, until we actually understand what he's asking. And then I want to be honest, because I think we all say, I'm not sure if I can Corey Ten Boom was confronted with this thing at one point in time, and somebody asked her, and they said, they said, Corey, how could you ever have done what you did? And she said, here's the beautiful thing about God. He's a, he's a daddy who has a train ticket for you to go on, and here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't give you the train ticket months in advance to where you can, you know, lose it and just crumple it up in your paper and send it through the wash and get it all. She, she said, what he does is in the moment that you need it, he gives you what you need. See? So this isn't a condemning point my finger at you. This is I want us to understand the call on every person's life that's in here. It is much greater than what we know. We do have a serious problem, don't we? Watch. Okay? Now, I want to make something very clear. Green pastures, still waters... That's a steel blue shirt with green on it. So it's clear that God loves the Seahawks more than the Patriots, right? Absolutely clear. And who couldn't love that young man, right? You don't love him, it's your fault. I don't think God has any trouble whatsoever that you enjoy a Super Bowl time. He's the one that made green pastures and still waters, right? He made that. And he said there's times to do that and enjoy them. Be refreshed. Enjoy. Just don't, under, just don't misunderstand that that's what life is about. The word that we had earlier today. What life is about is the going on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's what it's about. And we have a major problem in this, in this country, and I've said this many times before. Nothing is harder to survive than prosperity. Persecution is easier. It's still very hard. Don't misunderstand me. But nothing is harder to survive. In fact, we see it in one way. Remember the sower? He goes out and he sows seed. And he sows some seed. And some of it falls on a hard path. It's been walked. And Satan comes and steals that seed away from that person. And some of that seed falls into a rocky soil so that it can go down quickly. And then it pops up. And this one's talking about persecution. It pops up. And then the heat, the sun, the persecution comes. And it dies can't last because it didn't have a good enough root. And then there's the kind, that, the really cool kind, the kind that we all want to be, which is good soil. So that he can plant that seed in us and it bears 30, 60, 100 full fruit. Right? That's what we want to be. But do you understand that there was that fourth kind of soil, third in the list? The seed that fell amongst the thorn represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, so no fruit is produced. And I think that this is the one that has to do with prosperity. Because here's what I want to tell you. If you're living in most of the world right now today, your conditions are substantially difficult enough that the idea that heaven is a place of glory and that you're to keep your mind heavenly minded is easy to do. Because life itself is difficult. When my brother Dave went to Russia and introduced to the 11 time zones of Russia songs that had to do with the joy of the Lord, they called him the devil. Because for people in Russia who are notoriously good at suffering, 
to a fault. But the fact is, is look at their history. It's a pretty rough place to live. There's a lot of suffering. And what they said is joy is not for this world. Joy is for here, and you're giving people false hope. They actually had a point, didn't they? Now, they weren't right, because the truth is we're supposed to rejoice in the Lord even in those times. See it? But the bottom line is that we've got to understand that tough times means tough. It doesn't mean just enough to where you're uncomfortable. You know, it's like 82 degrees in the house, so you're sweating a little. See it? It doesn't mean that, does it? In fact, let's be really clear. I'm not saying that we're in the end times right now. I don't know if we are or we aren't. If we are, I can't say good. I can say whatever God wants to do and when he wants to do it. I can't say good because it tells me something in, my, in the scriptures, something that some people have a theology that says Christians will never suffer. My theology tells me that Christ suffered and I will suffer too. Right? And he says so right here in Revelation when he says, then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, every slave, every free, all hid themselves in caves and amongst the rocks of the mountains. They cried out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to survive? Now, right there, a lot of people's theology says, yeah, but we got raptured out before that because we've been spared his wrath, but you got a little problem. Because Jesus himself says something about that particular day. Unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person would survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he shortened those days. It means the chosen ones are in it. And it means when we're going through difficult times, that there's something that he's doing. There's something coming which, as, as Jesus says, look, the people in Noah's time were marrying and partying and enjoying their lives. They had no idea a flood was coming. And then it came. And he's saying, so too is going to be this time. People are going to be marrying and burying and living their lives and enjoying their lives, and suddenly something is going to come upon them. Now, not without warning, but, and I'm, this isn't, I'm not saying end times right now, I'm saying if we are the generation that's in the end times, wouldn't it be right of God to put you through enough so that you are one of those that could survive the persecution? So that you're not one of those who fell away. Because the temperature got too hot and it turned out your root wasn't deep enough and you burned up. Wouldn't it be loving of God? not angry at you, not mad at you, not hating you, not trying to hurt you, but wouldn't it be something if God, in his love, was preparing you to survive, to be able to handle whatever is coming? Right? Okay? We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. I just think, I don't know, is there more of a verse that's like Sam? Maybe one with God and one another the world might know. But I think this is probably the second biggest verse for Lake Sam that God has just said over and over for all the years that we've been together, right? Understand your life in the light of that God is working everything for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Understand everything in that light so that you don't freak out, right? And do understand something about tests and trials and tribulations. As long as you think they're a test, a trial, and a tribulation, you're not done. As long as you think I can hold on a little bit because it's going to end, you're not done. The time when you're done is when you can live in the middle of something that you think is never going to end. Because after all, the Hall of Fame of Faith tells us that many people went to their death in horrible ways, looking forward to what was to come. Right? So this is pretty solemn, right? But, but I need us to get a hold of something. If there is a season happening, if there is a wind blowing, if there is a thing where a lot of people look around and they see trouble, and you're, you're, you're walking through it, you can interpret it lots of different ways, but the way that I think that God is trying to tell us is, is in love, if I'm preparing you, if I'm strengthening you, that's good. So own it. Now what we're going to do here for the rest of our time is that we're going to take that thought and we're going to learn how to own it.
better. How to understand something I think is somewhat prophetic. We'll test it over time and we'll see. Right? But I think it's from the Lord. And if I had to say in summing it up where it is, I think that the Lord is doing something with every single Christian. I think he's shaking the tree and the stuff that isn't hooked on by Jesus, he's trying to get it to fall off. Okay? And the harder you hold on to it, the harder the shake has to be. Because I think what he's trying to say is, is where is our hope really? Where's your hope? Is it in your job? Is it in the lottery? Is it in what? See? Because it needs to be in Christ. So if I could say it another way, I would say it like this. Let me, I think God says, show you how to put your trust in me and me alone. Now watch these two beautiful ideas. The first one is one that you've heard before and you already kind of know, so I'm going to go through it a little more quickly. The second one is the one that I think is really the revelation for today. So let me just hit this. The first one is empathy. If we understand that when God is putting us through trials and tribulations, there's something that he's doing on purpose and that we need to learn how to own that. He's trying to get us to be empathetic. This is a picture of Julie's home. Now, it's not her actual home where she grew up. It's the one where she was every day, which is to say her grandparents' home. And Oakland is a small town where everybody's related to each other, and DNA tests are of no value. And you, you've got, this is, this is a home that had parts of the home that were 100 years old, and they were filled with knickknacks. Filled. Some of the things actually had economic value. But let me make it clear, while everybody likes to have something of economic value, that was not the hold that was not the value that this family placed in the things that were in this chock-full house. I, I made a mistake. I should have put a picture here to show you what the house looked like because I'm telling you what the house looked like was every single nook and cranny of the house had stuff in it. And much of it you would walk in and you'd say, well, that's junk. Some of it you would look at and you'd say, now that's really valuable. It was beautiful. Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean it was ugly. But I mean it was chalk. It, was in, it wasn't this minimal Scandinavian idea. Okay? It was Midwest, a hundred years of memories in every, like above the cabinets, and everywhere you looked. There was, my daughter was driving back when the house burned, and she was weeping, and I'm just not, I didn't get it. And I said, I don't understand. And she said, Dad. And she told me a story about a salt shaker that looked like a chicken, and what Donna did with that chicken. And what that meant to her. And she said, it's all gone now. I want to tell you that Julie has been, uh, God bless you, this will, this will show you more about Julie than anybody here needs to know or wants to know, but, but Julie has been suffering so badly with what happened, grieving, that it's like she lost somebody. And she said to me last week, she said, she said, now I understand what people who are depressed go through. And I was like, you're almost 60 years old and you don't know what depression feels like? <laughs> How did you escape that? <laughs> you know, I mean, she was like, I just don't want to do anything. And she has these moments where she's doing just fine and she's going along, she's doing something, and all of a sudden she'll just have this, and I can just see it come on her, and she'll think about something, and she'll say, because I'll say, what, honey? And she'll say, you know that screen, for example, they had this beautiful, ornate jade screen. And I, I'm sure it was quite valuable economically, but that's not the value. Ju that is Julie's mom to her. And Julie was thinking, there's going to come a day when I thought that would be in my life, when my mother wasn't. But that screen was, and it would remind me of her. This was the memory that has been taken away from me now. Now understand, and I think Julie has struggled a little bit with this, but this is not, I don't think God holds her to this at all. If, boy, I could be misunderstood on this so quickly and I would, I would just shoot myself rather than be misunderstood on this. Okay, Julie is not, does not care about the value. And I don't think that God was taking away because she cared too much. That's like people who say that the story of Job is God taking things from Job because he feared. Uh, it's just a misreading in my mind. I don't think God took it away from Julie. But there's a possibility of Julie going, did I do something wrong? Are we, is there something wrong with us? Why did God take this from us? And there's a little bit of her processing it that way, but then she immediately goes to, I know that that's not true. I know that God didn't do that. Do you see it? 
She goes, I know that that's not what God did. But she's going, I have to reorient my life. I thought my life was going to be filled and surrounded with family. Her living out here, you need to know what a challenge that is for her. Because Julie wants to live where her parents and her family and everything that she grew up with, that's home to her, right? And she's here in a mission field with me. And the fact is, is that she just thought that there would be this, you know, memories. All these memories. You get it? Am I doing good here? God did not take this away from her. But let's be clear. That doesn't mean he's not doing a good thing through it. It doesn't mean that he's not teaching her something, which is to say in a whole new level, in a way that she gets, but cast your care upon him for he cares for you. In fact, the way the scripture says it more deeply is he comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we'll be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower shower us with his comfort through Christ. And I want to say it like this. If you came to me and you lost a house like that, this doesn't mean much to me. It's the way I was brought up. We were not with family, and we didn't have all that stuff and everything else. And, and it doesn't mean to me the same thing. It doesn't. I, I just don't connect things with people at all. Thing is a thing, and the person's a person. That's just me. If you came to me wanting empathy for this, I would be as empathetic as I could, but I wouldn't be much solace to you. But if you came to Julie after what she'll have gone through here, after the way that God will have equipped her and trained her, built her up, that if you came to her with loss, that she would come to you and she would be able to sit with you and weep with you and you would know that somebody understood what you're going through. You're not alone. Somebody's with you. Do you see that? And we know this, don't we? We know that God's doing that. Why do we know it? Well, because we can read it, right? C.S. Lewis, who suffered greatly, said it this way. This is a letter to a friend. The great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own own or real life. The truth, of course, is that one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life. The life God is sending one day by day. What one calls one's real life is a phantom of one's own imagination. This, at least, is what I see at moments of insight. You see it? It comes and goes. But that's the point. It's hard to remember it all the time. I know your problems must be much the same as mine with the important, I love C.S. Lewis, with the important, by the way, Mike Hatch, thank you for turning me on to this. You can get these every day. This happened this morning, and I stuck it in the sermon because I loved it. With the important difference uh, that mine are of my own making. A very appropriate punishment, and like all of God's punishment, a chance for expiation. Expiation, what's it mean? It means a chance to make amends, a chance to do it right this time. I didn't do it right one time, and I've repented, and now I get a chance to get it right this time. See it? So what he's saying is, it is hard to go on, but now listen to what he says. He's telling us about this patience, this empathy. Cast your cares on him. He cares for you. And when you've been comforted, you can comfort others. That's what he's saying, right? But now watch this, because this is the point and the depths to which it has to get. Isn't it hard to go on being patient? To go on supplying sympathy? One stock of love turns out when the testing time comes to be so very inadequate. I suppose it's well that someone should be forced to discover that fact. Let me rephrase that last line. I suppose it's a good thing of God to dig a deeper well in us so that there's more to pull up in the times of real need. See it? Isn't that beautiful? Let me tell you how David said it. Resting God alone, my soul. Look who he's talking to in the next part. You, <laughs> me, see, <laughs> my soul, resting God alone, my soul, for my hope comes from him. 
He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will not be shaken. My salvation and glory depend upon God, my strong rock. My refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, everyone else. Pour out your hearts before him. God is our refuge. Do you see it? There isn't anything else. And when you let there be something else and you start to lean on it, you find out how illusory your support system really was. There is one in whom you can hope. There is one that stands in the day. Do you see it? And then he says, Selah. And we don't exactly know what Selah means, but as best we can tell, it, most people think what it means is a time of, of just stopping and let the music play, but it, it really has more to do with throwing up your hands and letting the music swell to the moment. So do you see it? it? It goes, my salvation and glory depend on God, my strong rock. This is a song they're singing. My refuge is my God. Trust in him at all times, all of us. Pour out our hearts before him. God is our refuge. And then it begins to transcend our words. And the music swells to fill. So that we can meet the moment in the fullness of the truth that God is our only hope and our only refuge. To bring it home to us. Do you see it? So what I want to say is, is, let me show you how to put your trust in me and me alone. Empathy, compassion helps. I'm trying to do something in you which you do not understand. You need right now. And so when it happens to you, you don't get why it's happening. And so you think it's about you and you misinterpret it. And you fight it. And you do all these things. But what I'm trying to do is to equip you for the day that you don't know is coming. I'm trying to use you more. See it? Now, I want to say, all of this I think we know. Okay, I hope. If you've been a Christian very long, I hope you know what I just said. It's always good to hear it again. I hope it has been good to hear it. But I want to go now to the place that I think is the revelation. This thing that has to do with this new thing that I think God is doing. And that is, I think that something's happened and that we're shifting. Not from love and empathy, because you cannot ever shift from love and empathy. If you shift from love and empathy, you go into fundamentalism and doctrine and dogma, and you start becoming just a, a clanging sound, right? You're just a noisy gong in people's ears if you don't have love. 1 Corinthians 13, right? You've got to have the love. That's the heart of it. That's, the, that's, that's why I had to take the time to do number one. But there's a second thing that's happening, and let me just briefly sketch it out for you what I think is taking place. In our fathers knows best generation, the age of my parents when they were growing up and they were young, that was a time in which the culture was Christian. Christianity set the culture, right? The, Christian, the culture was Christian, the Christian was the culture. They were one and the same thing. Now, there was actually a lot of problems in that. People were culturally Christian, not relationally. So the... 60s came along, and the counterculture happened. And the counterculture did throw God off. But let's just take and understand that anytime that these things are happening, God is doing something fundamental underneath. Do we pervert it? Yes, we do, horribly. But God is doing something underneath. And if you had to say, what were the 60s about? What's the one word that you would say the 60s intended to be about? Whether you might, whether it got so perverted so quickly into other things. But what's the one word that the 60s were supposed to be about? Do you see it? We all know it, don't we? So we went from an organizational formula relationship with God, or, or, you know, going to church and having a Christian culture, but not really being in love with Christ. And now all of a sudden, the culture as a whole started tr chasing after love. Now it quickly got perverted into sex, and it quickly got perverted into other things. But I want to suggest to you that these movements are underneath it is God. And he was trying to teach us to love him, which is why we started singing choruses. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. And then we would sing that for 45 minutes. 
and it didn't seem strange at all. It felt like love. Right? Now, what happened was is that the culture gradually shifted to the counterculture and the counterculture became the culture with the perversions too, which is to say throwing off of God and so on, right? The relational part stayed. And all of a sudden the church found itself not being the center of culture, it found itself on the outside of culture and so we had to start doing something. We sound like shrill instruments out here talking about doctrine and standing up against all of this stuff and we're not having any effect on all these people who are leaving in the droves. And so what started happening is we started saying we need to become more culturally relevant. And I want to say that can go too far, and I think it has, and that's where we are right now. But at the time, that was a very important thing to say because what was it saying? It was saying have empathy. It was saying understand where people are. It was saying we're trying to get more real about what this religion thing is. It's not right. It, our goal is not to get people into church. Our goal is to get people loving God. All the other stuff comes out of that. But the church had to learn how to become empathetic. It had to learn what was valuable in the culture that we could affirm. See? And we had to affirm that. We had to learn how to affirm that. That was my sermon last week, right? Learn how to affirm what can be affirmed. Stand against what can't, and that's what we're going to get. But here's the point. Whenever we do these things, we always go too far, don't we? And so as we became more sensitive to where people actually were in a more real way, there came a point in time at which I think we have now hit and which is why I think God is now transitioning to a new era where we became so empathetic that we actually have stopped being of any good. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Last week I talked about a church in our area, mega church, first mega church in the country that's going this way. I'm going to say their name right now. I didn't say it last week because I was trying to be discreet. People came up to me afterwards and said, you're talking about a name churches that it wasn't. And I was like, oh my God, I made it worse. Because now everybody's thinking it's all these other good churches that are out there. It's Eastlake. Okay? And the guy's name is Ryan Meeks. And, and Ryan, there's many people in this place that know Ryan personally. And Ryan has gone on this journey and everything else. Now, I watched his sermon from last week. And it so happens that during this week, I also watched another sermon from a church down in Nashville, which is not a mega church, but it was a thousand people. And this guy did a very similar thing to what Ryan did and said, what we're going to do is we're going to become inclusive now. I've studied this a lot. They said, they both said that. I've studied this enormously, and it took me four or five years to get to this place. But after four or five years of seeking, I believe that the church is wrong in its stance about homosexuality. We're not talking about promiscuity although they have not even made that distinction yet. I think they will. But, but, you know, I don't think either one of these guys is saying promiscuity is okay. What they're saying is, is that if you're in love and da-da-da, okay, we talked about it last week. But let me just tell you. I listened to both of these guys' sermons, and both of them were an hour long. Okay? And as I listened to their sermon, I was struck by something. Neither one of them talked even one sentence about what the Bible had to say about homosexuality. So here they are at the head of their churches making an argument that the church doesn't see things right and they never referred to the scriptures that have to do with it, not one time. Never even mentioned them. They both mentioned something in the Bible. What Ryan mentioned was, as he said, uh, to me this is kind of like a Peter moment where Peter, you know, his doctrine is to not eat unclean foods and now God gives him a vision and now you can eat the unclean food. And he was obviously making a parallel and saying, see, you know, we didn't accept that but now we're supposed to accept that. Now, the problem is, is that that's a completely facile argument, isn't it? Because if you look back, what you have before Peter got that vision, you have from Genesis 3 throughout the entire book where God is continually prophesying that I am coming to the Gentiles who have been up until that time unclean. So there's all of this prophecy that when he sees the vision, it's the fulfillment of the prophecy, which later is obvious to them. Oh, all that prophecy, we were supposed to go to the Gentile all along because God was telling us all along, literally saying, you're going to be going to the Gentiles. <laughs> but now here's Peter going, oh, I would never do anything like that. See? So Peter had it wrong. God had it right, he was prophesying about it, and now God was correcting his wrong theology that was against the prophetic. This other guy mentioned, he said, oh, the two guys that were traveling with Jesus, they didn't, they didn't recognize that it was Jesus, and so can it be now that God is trying to say something to us, and we don't recognize him. Once again, 
The point is, Jesus was the thing that was prophesied that the Son of Man must die and rise again. And these two guys don't understand what has been said continually throughout the whole of the Old Testament. That the Son of Man must die. They're thinking, King, he's gone. What are we going to do? He's saying, don't you understand? And he explains the scriptures to them. And then they understand. So once again, prophecy completely undergirds the revelation. These are facile analogies to say that something that God condemns in one place and condemns in the other place, to say that somehow, you know, to use those as examples of this is just stupid. Sorry, but it's bad theology. And as a person who likes good theology, it's hard to encounter this kind of thing and to sit there and watch it. It's hard for me. But let me tell you what else is hard. Let me tell you what both of them did. Because this is important for us to hear and to own. Here's what both of them did. They made it clear that their journeys had to do with talking with a lot of people who have a same-sex attraction and who love God and want to be part of a church and want to be part of a community. And except for that one issue, they're following him. Now that one issue turns out to be pretty large. But here's my point. I think what moved them, they're, they're both of their sermons, if you were to say, was it reason or was it empathy that they just argued in front of their congregations? It was totally empathy. Do you see what I'm trying to say here? I think we've gotten to a place where we've let the empathy get the better of us. Does that mean we quit need to be, stop, stop me to being empathetic? The opposite. I believe, and I said last week, and I say, I'm saying to you right now, I believe in every situation as Jesus did, as the Holy Spirit did through Jesus, in every situation that is hard, and Jesus got put a lot of hard things to him, right? You know, who, are we supposed to pay taxes? And then Jesus would do the right thing in the moment to show the better way. Are we supposed to do this? Are we supposed to do that? Are we supposed to do... And Jesus, every time, would have the exact right response. And here's what I want to tell you. If you've got a formula about what you're going to tell the next person that has a same-sex attraction and is talking to you, if you've got a formula that you're going to tell them, expect not to be successful in saving them or convincing them, either one. But if you're relying on the only hope that anybody has, and you're willing to be his instrument count on the fact that in the moment that you need it, God will give you the thing that'll penetrate, that'll get past, and that will be deeply loving, more loving than just empathy. Do you see it? I'm not arguing against love. I'm arguing for more love. And I'm arguing for love that cannot be formulized. I'm arguing, because that's not a love at all, is it? I'm arguing for a love that is dynamic and intimate and real and God-led and God-empowered in the moment. I'm arguing that we should be the kind of people who when someone is sick, we can pray for them and they get healed. I'm arguing that we should be the kind of people that when a person has a need, we get a word of wisdom and we tell it to them and it's from the Lord. I'm arguing that people would find and discover this God who loves them. I'm arguing that the church is going from being part of our culture to becoming prophetic. And I want to explain to you what that means because it means something hard for us. Remember the love. Don't, don't, I'm not coming against the love, but, but I want to tell you that this last Friday I did a memorial for Terry Jones right here in this room. And before the memorial, I was asking the Lord, as I always do, what do you want me to say? And I knew, because Terry lived a very full life in a lot of different camps of people, I knew that there would be a lot of people here, which there were, and I knew that a lot of those people would come from very different perspectives. Clearly, not, maybe not even, they're not more than half are Christians, but there was a very large percentage of the people in that room that were not Christians. And normally, my bent when I'm faced with something like this is to do this. You know that scale? Have you ever seen the scale that says if a person is a minus eight in terms of where they are with God, that our job is to help get them to a minus six or a minus four? And so I would say things about God's love that might penetrate their hearts. I would say things about grace. More open to God. But when I asked the Lord what I was supposed to pray during this thing, he told me something that was quite different than that in spirit. 
And he made it very clear to me. And I, I'd have to confess that I argued with him about this. Because this is a time when people are grieving and I didn't want to do this. And God was not saying don't do it with love. But what he told me to tell him was, he said, I want you to say clarion call. That was the word that was in my heart. Clarion call. As clearly as you possibly can, I want you to say to these people assembled here two things. One, God is real. Two, heaven is real. This is not something that people in grief have made up in order to comfort themselves. This is real. And then there was a scripture that I felt like he wanted me to read, and I literally argued with him until the moment I read it. And I'm not saying argue with him. That's, that's, that's the wrong thing. I knew that he was telling me to do it, but I was praying to God that it would come across as love and not how it could be read. Because the story that he had me read was the one about Lazarus and the rich man. And if you know the story about Lazarus and the rich man, let me tell you what it says. When Lazarus, a poor person, who was waiting at the gates that the rich man might give him something from his table, when, the, when they both die, Lazarus goes into the bosom of Abraham, into paradise, into comfort, and the rich man goes to a place of torment so bad that he asks Abraham to send Lazarus over with just one drop of water on the tip of his finger to, qu to, to quench this thirst, this eternal thirst that he has. Now I'm telling you, when people are grieving, this is a pretty hard thing to say if a person doesn't know the Lord. I think I got, honestly, I think I got about 80% of what God wanted me to do. You know what I felt in my heart? I felt like God was saying there's some people that need to hear the truth and you need to not soften it. Because you love people, Kurt. And that's good. But if you do this wrongly, you will soften it to the point that it doesn't become me talking to them. I've told you before of a friend, a guy that I met, but he planted 600 churches in India, and I went out to lunch with him, and I asked him, what do you think is the biggest problem in Christianity today? This was some years ago. And he said, it's that people have a prophetic word, but then they have a heart for the person, and they add to the prophetic word some words of kindness some words of hope. And people's attentions go from the word I'm trying to tell them to, in other words, we do this, we say, you know, you need to repent of this, but if you do, God has all these wonderful things. And what, I, what he said I feel like is he said, God is trying to tell somebody something and they need to own it. Are the wonderful things true? Yes, they are, but that gets them focused on this and not on this. And can I tell you, I think that this is where we are now. I don't think we're here right now. Don't misunderstand me. I think we're in a time of transition. And I believe that the transition, just like it did in the 60s, is going to take a number of years to fully work itself out. But what I believe with all of my heart at this point in time, as best I got it, discern with me, be a family, let's work through this together. But I believe what call, was calling us to do is two things. One, to have a heart to love Deeply and greatly, greatly, to massively. But to also speak the truth. In love, but clearly and cleanly. Speak what's true. And I think that in part because I look at Timothy and I hear God saying through Paul, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth. Now, you've heard that before, probably, if you've been a Christian, but look at this. I want you to see where this verse goes now. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of the suffering of the Lord. What have we been talking about? If he's training you up, understand how, imp how important it is. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. Do you see it? And in fact, another way that he says it is he cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they'll produce even more. And I think that that's the time that we're coming to in the church. I think that the church, 
is becoming more and more, have you ever heard this concept of the hidden church and the visible church? The visible church is people that say they're Christians and go to church. The hidden church is people that love God, that have given their whole of their lives to him, that are following him with everything they've got. And I think that this is where we are. And I want us to stand in this place with authority. That's what I felt like God was telling me to say when I was standing literally right here. And I was saying, God is real and heaven is real. I kept asking God, how do you want me to say that? And he said, with authority. I want you to proclaim it because it's true. And there's somebody out there that needs to hear it needs to let it get into their heart. So I would end this whole thing by saying this. This is Joshua. If it doesn't please you to worship Yahweh, then choose for yourselves today the one that you will worship. As for me and my family, we will worship Yahweh. We will worship the Lord. I think that God is calling us to make that determination. I think he's calling us to make that decision. And we're going to do something right now, and what we're going to do is an altar call. And we are done with the service in about two minutes when I get done talking. But I'm hoping that you won't leave. I'm hoping that you will take a minute. And I'm hoping that what you will do is that you will grab that communion that's in front of you. And I'm hoping you're ready. And I'm, hope, I'm asking you to spend a minute with the Lord as a little background music is being played. I'm asking you to take a time, minute with the Lord and do two things. One, do I understand that the Lord, here, I'll put it up for you. Do I understand that the Lord is making me empathetic? Do I understand that he's training me up in the things of love? Do I understand that the hard things that are happening for, to me are not just for me? They're things that he's trying to work into my life for things I don't understand that are coming. That's number one. Do I understand that so I can properly interpret it, so I can properly own the process and not fight him, right? And number two, are you willing to be his mouthpiece? Here's what he said. I never do anything but what I hear the Father doing, or I never do anything but what I see the Father doing, and I never say anything but what I hear him saying. I want to tell you at that service, I prayed God to forgive me because as much as people came up and said that was incredible and awesome and what Terry would have wanted, and it clearly is, I know in my heart that I was about 20% off the mark. And I've asked God to forgive me and I've asked God to save whoever it was he was trying to save and to do that despite my mistake. But here's what I want to say. Not without love, we need to become prophetic. Prophetic doesn't mean telling what's happening in the future. Prophetic means being the mouthpiece of the Lord, being the word of the Lord, saying what he tells you to say, speaking for him. Do we get it? So what I want you to do is I want you to take a moment and I want you to, when you're ready, come to the altar. Spend a time, spend a moment with the Lord. Let him talk to you. Let him start equipping you. Let him start doing something in your heart. And when you're done, take that communion. Seal it with the Lord. And then thank you for going out in the hall and buying your Super Bowl stuff and all that. We're done right now.